Acts 18, verses 1 to 22. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them because he was a tent maker, and as they were, as they were, and he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. Many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptised. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Be silent. For I am with you, and no one's going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this sea. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Galileo was pro-counselor of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to them, If you Jews can complain about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourself. Not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sisyphus, the synagogue leader, and bet them in front of the pro-council. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Paul stayed in Corinth for some time. The brothers and sisters sailed for Syria, accompanied by Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off in censure because of the vow he had taken. He arrived in Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquilia. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with Jews. When he asked him to spend time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it's the God's will. Then he set sail for Ephesus, when the land of Caesar He went to Jerusalem and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. The second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verses 10 to 20. If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. No one then should refuse to accept him. Send him on his way in peace, so that he may return to me. I am expecting him, along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage, be strong, 
do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts care, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you, brothers, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. I was glad when Stephanus and Achaicus arrived, because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets house. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. There's probably a four-year gap between Paul's arrival or time in Corinth and writing the letter we know as 1 Corinthians. And we heard in Acts how when he arrived at Corinth, he stayed with a couple called Priscilla and Aquila. Like him, they were Jewish believers in Jesus. Like him, they shared the same trade of tent-making. And, and Paul stayed about 18 months in Corinth. His first convert was a man called Stephanus, who believed the good news with his household, and they were all baptised by Paul, one of a relatively small number that Paul baptised there himself. And after a while, it was just that Paul was joined in Corinth by Timothy and Silas, which freed him up to, to concentrate all the more on sharing the good news of Jesus. And by the time they left, despite opposition, a church had been firmly established in the city. Paul, Priscilla and Aquila moved from Corinth uh, to Ephesus. And from there, Paul himself went on to Antioch, which had been the starting point for a particular missionary journey. And after he'd left Ephesus, a man named Apollos turned up there. He was a very learned man. He knew the scriptures well. He knew all about Jesus, though it seems there was something wrong with his understanding of baptism. Luke says he only knew the baptism of John. Quite what that means, we're not sure. It may mean that he saw baptism as being more about repentance in Jesus' name. What we do know is that Priscilla and Aquila took him under the wing at Ephesus, set him straight on a thing or two, and sent him off to Corinth. And he was an instant success there. People loved his rhetorical skill, his ability to argue powerfully from the scriptures. And in comparison to Paulus, the new boy on the block, in the minds of some people, Paul began to look a little jaded, a second best. In the church, there began to develop a certain amount of rivalry between people who thought Apollos was better, people who stayed loyal to Paul, and there were some who were beginning to run Paul down a bit. In the meantime, Paul had come back to Ephesus from Antioch, and while he was there, Stephanus came to visit him from Corinth with a couple of other men called Fortunatus, and they brought with them a letter from Corinth that people had written in response to a letter Paul himself had sent here. And their letter was full of questions about a whole range of issues. If we're Christians and we're to be holy, is it okay to get married? If you're a Christian, you've got to be holy. Does that mean that you can't have sex, even if you are married? What about worship idols? If an idol doesn't exist, does it matter if I go to an idol's temple? And does it matter if I eat food that has been offered to worship an idol? Does that, is that something I should do, or am I, am I free to do that? What about spiritual gifts? How do they work? What about things in particular? What about the resurrection of the dead? Is that really going to happen? You, you told us we had to raise money for, for the saints in Jerusalem. What are we... And what about Paulus? 
Some of us would love to see him again. Can't you persuade him to come back and visit us? Because we're missing him. Why hasn't he come already? And these are all issues that Paul takes up and responds to one by one in the letter we know as 1 Corinthians. And he had to disappoint about Apollos. Earlier in the letter, he'd been at pains to make it clear that he and Apollos were singing off the same hymn sheet. There was no rivalry or disaffection between them. They were partners in building up the church in Corinth. Paul was like the guy who planted the seed in the first place. Apollos was the guy who'd come along and watered it, but God gave the increase. They were both engaged in building the church together. People in Corinth had no business bigging up one and running down the other. And at the end of the letter, Paul refers to Apollos warmly as my brother. He says, look, I've asked him time again to come back and see you at Corinth, but he's not having any of it. He doesn't want to come. It's not that I want him to go. It's just that the timing isn't right. There's, there's other bits and pieces. Some people think that Apollos was reluctant to go to Corinth because he didn't want to play into the hands trying to set up this rivalry between him and Paul. But what Paul says at the end of the letter is, look, the only issue between me and Apollos is I want him to back to Corinth to see you, and he doesn't want to. Which is one in the eye for those who are trying to claim Apollos as their own, as an advantage over Paul. So Apollos wasn't coming as they requested and hoped, but Timothy was. Paul was clearly concerned about the kind of reception that Timothy would get turning up. They were expecting and hoping Apollos, and it was Timothy. And he'd made it clear earlier in the letter that he, he was actually sending Timothy to sort them out, to set them straight on one or two issues, to remind them exactly the kind of person that Paul was, how he lived in accordance with what he taught. Paul doesn't mince his words. He says, look, since I left, some of you have just got too big for your boots. You've become arrogant. I'm not having it. <coughs> a lot would depend on how they responded to Timothy when he arrived. If the Christians in Corinth took on board the message that Timothy was bringing from Paul and Paul's letter, he says, I'd really love to come and visit you again in a spirit of gentleness. But if you don't get your act together, I will bring a whip with me, he says. So he's sending Timothy back into a really difficult situation and the young man was understandably anxious and Paul sets great store by him. He says, look, he's my son. I love him. He's faithful to the Lord. When he turns up, make sure you set all his fears to rest. Receive him as someone who is doing the Lord's work every faithfully. So make sure you don't look on him. Make sure you don't despise him. Make sure you don't turn him away. Make sure you send him back to me in peace, he says. Well, that's not what happened. You've, you've heard me say before, every time you know, things get a bit fractious at the church, I always look at Corinth and think, ah, oh, at least I'm not there. Things got so bad that Paul visited the city himself because his, his, his letter and sending Timothy hadn't worked. Where there, he was the subject of a particularly strong attack by one of the church leaders. He really felt undermined and got at. And he wrote them an extremely sharp letter in response, tearful letter. 
which many people identify as four chapters of what we know as, as 2, Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapters 10 to 13. In the end, it was Titus, another again, who went back to Corinth to try and mend the broken bridges between Paul and the church. And Titus got on so much better that uh, enabled Paul to write his own letter of reconciliation, expressing joy that at last they'd sorted out their differences, and that's what we get in the opening chapters of 2 Corinthians. But even as Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, this letter we've been going through over recent months, you can see that things were beginning to go horribly wrong. And it serves as a salutary lesson to us in church just how vital it is to keep the simple things Love and forgiveness and grace have to be at the very core of life together as a church. Very simple to say, very difficult to do, a bit boring to preach on all the time, but it's true. Love, forgiveness and grace, the core elements of a church. So Paul urges them at the end of his letter, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Make sure you do everything in love. All those manly qualities of strength and standing firm and being on your guard are not incompatible with doing all that in love. Stand up for the faith, he says. Make sure you stand up for the faith shoulder to shoulder, together, in love for each other. And in the midst of all these kind of splintered relationships, people getting in each other, all, all the kind of splitting off into groups and the arguments and the disagreements and the rivalry, just look at Stephanus. Look at the first man who became a Christian in your city and his household. Look at the kind of people that they are and give them due recognition. Acknowledge who they are and what they do. The church started with them. They were the first converts. In some ways they were like the members of the church. They merit respect, he said. But it wasn't just that everything began with them. Look how they've devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Look at the example they've set for you to follow. Join with them in the work that they're doing. Get along with it alongside them. Writing from Ephesus, where life for Paul, he talked about how Stephanus' arrival had lifted his spirits. And he was confident that when Stephanus got back to Corinth again, Stephanus would lift their spirits as well. That was the kind of person that he was. And Stephanus and Achaicus and Fortunatus had supplied what Paul felt he was lacking from the church. Contact. Support. Encouragement. Love. And it's fascinating to look at Paul, who all single-handedly masterminded taking the good news of Jesus through what we now know as Turkey and into Greece. A man driven by a passion for the gospel, and yet in his letters you see him as a man who remains emotionally vulnerable as well. He needed encouragement and support and prayer as much as anyone else. And he lets them in as he shares the difference that Farnas had made to him when he got to him in Ephesus. So think of people like the Farnas and his household, Paul says to them, and submit yourselves to people like 
Now that could be seen as a bit of a comment, given that there were people in the church who were trying to establish themselves as leaders and kind of playing up how spiritual they were and how wise they are and what gifts they had. Paul says, you want to know the people you should follow? You want to know the people you should submit to? It's people like Stephanus. And you won't find them hogging the limelight. You won't find them eager to take positions of leadership. People who've been steady. People who've devoted themselves to the service of others. People who simply carry on God's work while others are throwing their toys out of the pram. People who have the ability to refresh those around them. And they may never be high flyers, but the last thing any church needs is a surfeit of managers or high flyers or leaders. It's people who carry on God's work faithfully in difficult circumstances and still model what it means to be a follower of Christ. So the real strength of a church lies not in its leaders or its ministers. It lies in people like Stephanus. People who are reliable. People who are humble. People who are concerned about others. People who are hardworking. People who have that ability to refresh the hearts of those around them. The kind of people who can easily be taken for granted. Just carry on working steadily in the background. Well, like Norton Antivirus. You know, Norton Antivirus is working in the background. Those of you who have Windows users. All the time. Just working gently there, steadily and faithfully, and keeping things on track. Enriching the lives of others without fuss or bother or drawing attention to themselves. Take note of such people, says Paul. Submit to them. Support them. Encourage them. Thank God for them as they support and encourage so many others. And thank them for what they do as well. Although they shun the limelight, the light of Christ shines through them into the hearts of others because they work to Christ's agenda, not any agenda of their own. And what they do, they do in love. Here at Brighton Road, we have such people. Thank God for them. Value them. And use them as your role models for our work together and service of the Lord. Take note of Paul like Stephanus, treasure them, follow their example and work in partnership with them to the glory of God. Amen.